The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone. This is a beautiful fall afternoon in New Hampshire and um, I hope you all are having a great day. We have a very interesting show today. Um, Our guest is Dr. Brene Brown. And we're going to talk about shame, and we're also going to talk about the gifts of imperfection. And let me introduce Dr. Brene Brown, who is a professor and vulnerability researcher at the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work. Um, because vulnerability is at the center of many thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, her research topics cover a broad range of emotions and experiences, including shame, courage, and authenticity. Brene spent the first five years of her decade-long study focusing on shame and fear and is now using that work to explore the concept she calls wholeheartedness, which is something we'll be talking about this afternoon. She um, poses the following questions. How do we learn to embrace our vulnerabilities and imperfections so that we can engage in our lives from a place of authenticity and, and worthiness? And then how do we cultivate the courage, compassion, and connection that we need to recognize that we are enough? that we are worthy of love, belonging, and joy. Um, Brene is also the author of I Thought It Was Just Me, But It Isn't, <laughs> which is a great title, Telling the Truth About Perfectionism, Inadequacy, Power, and Power, uh, and two forthcoming books, um, Who We Are and Wholehearted, I'm sorry, the current book, The Gift of Imperfection, Letting Go of Who We Think We Should Be and Embracing Who We Are, and then Wholehearted, Spiritual Adventures and Falling Apart, growing up and finding joy. Thank you so much, Brene, for spending this hour with us. Oh, I'm so excited to be on the air with you. Thank you for having me. Um, you've, uh, well, first of all, tell us why you decided to become a researcher, which um, seems kind of a dry profession to be in. You know, I, I don't think I knew why I became a researcher until the last couple of years, maybe, and now it kind of all fell into place. You know, hindsight, it's 2020, as they say. I really think that it had a lot to do with my own discomfort around vulnerability. Um, I think I grew up as someone who really was always trying to outrun vulnerability and that sense of uncertainty and that sense of that, you know, we can't really control everything we want to control. And so when I was a graduate student getting my master's in social work, I had a research teacher that had this little slogan that he would share with folks that said, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. And I thought, that's the world I want to live in. I want to live in a world where everything is measurable, where everything can be compartmentalized and is clean and tidy and, you know, makes sense. And so I really, I think, became a researcher because if I could not run vulnerability, um, I thought I could maybe outsmart it. And so I thought, I want to take on these really tough topics that all of us deal with that are universal and I want to figure them out. I want to kind of hack into them and see how they work. And so I spent the first six
six years of my research studying shame. And in about toward the end of my sixth year, I started looking at my data with some fresh eyes and realized that the men and women who were kind of living and loving the way I wanted to be engaged in life all had one thing in common, and that was that they embraced their vulnerability, um, the very thing that I think I had been running from. And so it was a very life-altering, profession-altering moment for me. So my history is both academic and personal. Can you explain to us now when you... When you try to measure shame, it's not like doing quantitative research where um, where we do medication trials or we look at um, you know people's reaction to um, a bell when they're hungry. It's not something we can quantitatively measure. It's tough. It's really what, what's interesting is I really started out as I really started out studying connection. I wanted to figure out. What is the anatomy of connection? How does connection work? I mean, I knew as a social worker that connection is what really gives meaning and purpose to our lives. It's, it's why we're here, you know, connection between partners, between children and parents, between friends, family. Connection is an incredibly huge driver. It's, you know, we're really even neurobiologically hardwired to be in connection. And I'm a qualitative researcher, which means I collect stories, and so about I don't know, a few months into my sh- into this research on connection, I ran into this this thing that violently unraveled connection between people. People would talk about this feeling or this experience that would absolutely kill connection, and I wasn't sure what it was. And the more people talked about it, the more I realized, oh, my gosh, I, I think they're talking about shame. And I didn't have... The only point of reference I had came from when I was a young bachelor student. I worked in a residential treatment facility with adolescent girls. And we had a, a clinical director that went, went, told us one day in a staff meeting that we needed to be very careful about using shame as kind of a behavioral management tool and said that you really can't shame people into changing their behaviors. You can't belittle people or put them down into changing behaviors in a meaningful way. And that was that always really struck with me. So stuck with me. And so when I started running into these stories of shame, I thought, gosh, I really want to understand more about this. And I really thought I would end up studying it for maybe a few months, maybe a year, um, depending on how complicated it was. But it ended up being six years. And it's not something we can measure quantitatively. It is my definition for shame is that it's a very universal feeling that washes over us, that tells us we're not good enough, that we're not worthy of love and belonging because of something we've done or something we failed to do or some struggle that we're engaged in. And so it's very difficult to measure quantitatively. I mean, yeah, quantitatively. It's, it's really more about story, our experiences. Well, yeah, it's really interesting because at Westbridge we work with folks that experience both mental illness and substance use disorders, and shame seems to be a common thread for a lot of um, individuals and families that people feel ashamed that they have a mental illness or they feel ashamed of their substance use disorders or things that they've done, and um, shame really gets in the way of recovery. Oh, God, absolutely. I mean, the three things I, you know, the three things I that I can tell people very quickly about shame is, number one, we all have it. We believe that shame is probably the most primitive human emotion or affect that we experience. 
the only people, and we know this from about 40 years of data and qualitative and quantitative data, the only people who don't experience shame are people who have no capacity for human connection or emotion. And so we're talking about serious kind of psychopathology. So we all have shame. Is shame ever appropriate? That's a great question. I don't think so. Um, I don't think so. And let me, that's a great question. Let me get to it. Um, the two, the three real quick, because sometimes it's even hard. Sometimes I think if your listeners are out there and they're thinking, you know, she's talking about shame, that's not me. I think the number one thing to realize is that we all have it. The number two thing is we don't want to talk about it or believe it's about us. And the number three thing is the less we talk about it, the more we have it. So shame is this, you know, shame drives this thing that we all know, that, that I am not enough, good enough, pretty enough, thin enough, sober enough, rich enough, successful enough, admired enough, popular enough, loved enough. You know, we all, we all have that struggle. To have that struggle is to be human. The question about shame, is, is shame ever productive or appropriate or healthy, is, a, is a, very, a very common question, a very important question. And I think the best way to understand it is there's a very significant difference between shame and guilt. Shame is, I am bad. And guilt is, I did something bad. Shame is a focus on self, and then guilt is a focus on behavior. And so to use an, a really interesting example from Tangney and Deering, two quantitative researchers who study shame and addiction, um, and this is actually from um, Addictive Beat, is it, yeah, Addiction, the journal, um, the academic journal, they use this example. You go out on a Thursday night, you get really, really drunk, you're so hungover on Friday that you miss a meeting. If, you're, if your self-talk, the way you talk to yourself is, God, I'm so stupid, I'm such an idiot, you know, I'm such a loser. That's, that's shame self-talk, very much an attack on self. I'm a loser. I'm an idiot. I'm stupid. If your self-talk, on the other hand, is I can't believe I did that. That was a really stupid thing to do. I should not have done that. You know, a focus on the behavior, that's guilt. We have found over, again, probably the last 40 years of research that guilt is a very adaptive and healthy emotion. Guilt is when we hold something we've done or failed to do up against who we want to be, and we experience kind of cognitive dissonance, this, this feeling that this discomfort that's created when we're not living con- a congruent life, we're not living how we want to be, we're not making choices that are consistent with our values. Shame, on the other hand, is so painful and paralyzing that we don't find that it's ever helpful. And in fact, and this is really, especially with the population that you're working with, in fact, shame is highly correlated with addiction, depression, bullying, eating disorders, suicide. Guilt, on the other hand, seems to be inversely correlated with those things, meaning the more someone uses guilt self-talk rather than shame self-talk, the less likely the less incidence of addiction, bullying, depression, suicide. So not only is guilt healthier, it almost seems to be a protective factor in our lives. I'll have to tell my kids that the next time they <laughs> talk about them. The next time you guilt them, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's true. I mean, it's like, you know, you know, and it's funny because when we talk about the differences between shame and guilt, you know, one of the questions I always get is, you know, 
what makes the difference? Like how how do some people end up use being what we call more shame-prone and others more guilt-prone? And when I say prone, I mean more likely to use self-talk that's guilt-oriented or shame-oriented. And interestingly and, hard, and, and scary for a lot of us who are parents, the number one predictor variable is parenting style. There is a significant difference between you're a bad girl and you're a great kid and that was a bad choice. Right. You know, it's interesting, too, because I think sometimes shame um, doesn't really create behavior change where I think guilt does. Oh, absolutely. We rarely, when we're talking about meaningful, lasting behavioral change, shame is never the motivator. You cannot, you, 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 can't, you, may, you cannot shame someone into making amends. I mean, and if they go through the motions, then they're just the motions. You can't shame someone into being grateful. You can't shame someone into changing. You know, and when we try, especially with our kids, you know, shame is like using a 500-pound anvil on a thumbtack. You may drive the thumbtack in, but you're going to crush it in the process. There was a very interesting longitudinal study conducted by another group of researchers who, the thing thing that's interesting about shame and guilt-proneness is that you can't, really, you, you know, kids don't really declare a proneness or you don't, we don't see a consistent proneness emerging kids until about fifth grade. Before fifth grade, they're kind of all over the place. But around fifth grade, not age nine or ten, we see them settle into a pattern of self-talk. And so these researchers took a, took a group of fifth graders and measured them for guilt or shame proneness. You know, is it I am stupid or I did something stupid? and then followed them up as seniors in high school. Shame-prone kids were more likely to drop out of school, commit suicide, struggle with addiction, engage in high-risk sexual and drug, sexual you know, behavior and drug behavior. Guilt-prone kids were much more likely to finish high school, apply for college, do community service, and engage in lower-risk sexual and drug behaviors. There is a significant difference. And I guess we're not talking about Catholic guilt here either, are we? You know, it's funny about that. That It's funny that you ask. In fact, what a really, um, June Tangney, one of the researchers, actually writes a little bit in her book around about kind of that, her personal experiences growing up Catholic. And I certainly write a lot about spirituality, and I thought it was just me, which is my book on shame. Um, one of the questions I get asked all the time is, you know, are, do Jewish folks experience more guilt? Do Catholics experience? Those are the, really the two big questions. It, is, do you see more guilt in, Jewish, in the Jewish community or the Catholic community? And really, there is not one denomination that emerges as more guilt or shame-prone than the other. But there are some patterns that are, are revealing, I think, that it's not denomination, but it, there are within congregations people who struggle more. So it really seems to be not the church itself, but it seems to be a person-made issue how shame is used as a tool of power within specific churches. Um, And what we often see is that people who do experience a lot of shame around religion often pull out of that religion, but their healing often involves some spiritual element, which is not surprising. Well, you know, it's, it's all pretty amazing. I think the other thing about shame is that, as you said earlier, it's very self-centered. 
and um, it's you know it, it pushes people away. You can feel ashamed of something, and you can feel bad about yourself, but there's an inertia that happens, and and it's like you're not you're not making a connection. Oh yeah, guilt, or guilt. You're, you're you're trying to make amends, and you're trying to 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 make a connection. Right, exactly. Well, we'll be right back and talking more with Brene about the gifts of imperfection. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. If you have any questions for us or you want to make some comments, please uh, give us a call. Uh, our guest today is Dr. Brene Brown, and we're talking about um, shame, and we're going to be soon talking about imperfection, which are two things we all can identify very strongly with, I'm sure. And before going to break, we were talking about how shame almost um, is it's very kind of self-absorbed, but um, shame really... Uh, people who are really shame-based are really stuck. They, it's really hard for them to almost get out of their own way. Oh, yeah. You know, one of the things I say about all the time is shame is an absolute emotional straitjacket. Um, we can't wiggle out. We can't reach out. We can't grow. Um, we, we, it is absolutely, we're stuck. And, you know, I use a couple of metaphors when I talk about it because one of the things that's very interesting and important to understand about shame is that 
if shame washes over me, you know, that warm wash where we, I feel small and inadequate, and it washes over a man, it's going to feel the same. However, shame is very organized by gender. You know, the messages and expectations that fuel shame are very much organized by gender. And so what the, the metaphor I use for a woman, for women is a web, that women get caught in this web of conflicting and competing and unattainable expectations about who we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to look like, what our houses are supposed to look like, how many times a week we're supposed to be having sex, how many kids we're supposed to have, whether we're supposed to have kids, you know. It's just, you just, we just drown in them. And it's impossible. It's just absolutely impossible, you know, to meet the expectation of do it all, do it perfectly, and take care of yourself last. You know, that's it. And for men, the metaphor that, you know, what I use is a box, that men are in this very small claustrophobic box, and they don't have a lot of competing and conflicting expectations. They have one, and that is do not be perceived as weak. And it's very, very just suffocating for men. You know, men are very smart. You know, we tell men, you know, be honest, be vulnerable, show me your fear. But the truth is most women are repelled by that. We can't tolerate it. Um, and I say all the time, you know, show me a woman who can sit with a man in real vulnerability, and I'll show you a woman who's done her work. And show me a man who can sit with a woman who's in struggle and just hear her and not try to fix it, and I'll show you someone who's done their work. You know, and so shame is, you know, the expectations, again, and messages that fuel shame are very much cultural and driven by gender. Well, and you've said that shame can act like a straitjacket, too. I yeah, that's, absolutely. That's, that's a great uh, video metaphor. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's very much the, the case. In reading your book, one of the, uh, I want to uh, quote a couple things that I thought um, really like struck me is that we're, you're talking about life being a journey and that it's equal parts heart work and head work. And um, I don't know that we have them imbalanced most of the time. No, I don't think so either. I, I don't think so at all. I mean, I can speak for myself. I, I'm, head work is definitely easier for me than heart work. And I think that's true of all of us. You know, somebody who's studied vulnerability for the last 10 years, I can say that, you know, head work is far less vulnerable than heart work. And we don't live in a culture that really, uh, I guess, that really honors the importance of soul work, of heart work. And so, you know, even me, I mean, that's my history as a researcher. I wanted to outsmart something rather than feel my way through it because it feels so much safer, so much less risky, so much less chance of getting hurt. You know, vulnerability is a very difficult thing. Vulnerability is, are those moments when we realize how uncertain life is and that we have far less control than we'd like and that if we are really going to fully engage in love, we have to risk loss. And those are, that vulnerability is hard for us in our culture. You know, we live in a culture where we wake up in the morning, we put our game face on and we leave it on all day and it becomes so attached to who we are that it doesn't even come off at home. You know, and so, and I, I personally believe, you know, I have, you know, my own thoughts as a researcher on, you know, addiction and mental health issues. I think, I think that sometimes there are, you know, really organic and clinical causes for addiction and mental illness. And I think other times it's just a way that we 
protect ourselves from vulnerability. Mm. I mean, I think the line, you know, certainly as someone who's worked in addiction and recovery for the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, certainly there are, you know, I think there are genetic factors and other factors at play, but I think there's way more at play than that. I think that it's hard to do your heart work when you're not vulnerable, and most of us are anesthetizing vulnerability in some way all the time. We just are numbers. We're a nation of numbers. That's true. There's a pill for everything. Yeah, and not, and not just pills. I mean, we are the most obese, in debt, medicated, and addicted adult cohort in human history. Well, on that positive note, let's talk yeah. about wholeheartedness. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, it is. I think it is. It's because yeah. we numb. It's because yeah. when it's time to do the heart work, you know, we grab a Miller Lite or we grab a banana nut muffin or four or you know, we just and uh, me too. Yeah. Me too. I mean, like, you know, this guy, they've got this new book coming out, and I just am, like, having to really be very mindful that under all this stress, I'm not, like, turning to peanut butter. Right. Well, and I think our, our whole, um, we get so much information bombarded at us that it's it's overwhelming to sort it all out, you know? Oh, it's it's really hard. And I think I think we kind of see in our culture vulnerability as weakness. Right. And the problem is, and I think this is so important for people to understand, that when we numb vulnerability with food or alcohol or just, you know, busyness, staying busy all the time, people just, I've never seen, you know, we're the busiest people I've ever seen. Um, We also, by default, numb all of the positive experiences, too. We also numb joy, gratitude, creativity, inspiration, Vulnerability is the heart of those experiences, too. There's, there's probably no emotion that's more vulnerable to experience, really, than love or joy. I mean, if you think about it, those are kind of excruciatingly vulnerable. Right, right. You know, and I talk to parents all the time about how many of us have, you know, stood over our child while they're sleeping and, you know, we're just, you know, right on that, you know, brink of being blissed out, and then we think about something horrible happening to them. right. Because we're trying to kind of beat vulnerability to the punch, you know. And so I do think that, I do think this idea of wholeheartedness, you know, this is kind of where my research has focused in the last few years, is really came from understanding that to live in love with our whole hearts, to really be all in, to be engaged, is an act of vulnerability. You know, it's, it's, it's tough. I think. Except for how me. Is, how is vulnerability different than powerlessness? Because you talk some about powerlessness in your book, too. You know, it's funny. That's a really, you know, no one in all my career has ever asked me that question. And it's a, it's a really good question. It's a hard question for me. Um, I'm not a fan of the word powerlessness, you know, and, and I'm not sure, and I understand the importance it plays in 12 steps, and I've been sober for going on 15 years, and um, certainly the 12 steps have been very important to me in my life, but I I am not a fan of the word for some, um, and I'm trying to think through why. Um, 
And in fact, I talk about this this struggle for me personally in the, in the gifts of imperfection. Right. Um, you know, the definition of power that I use in my work, the shame book, the new book, I, I use the same definition of power. And that is, you know, it's a definition actually from Martin Luther King. And it's simply the ability to affect change. And that's what the definition of power is. Um, and I think... I don't ever question my ability to affect change. I, I believe in my ability. In fact, I, you know, I have a bachelor's, a master's, and a PhD in social work. If I didn't believe in people's ability to affect change, then I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Right. Because I, I don't think it's helpful to say, you know, here's what shame is, and if you got it, too bad. Um, so I think we all have the capacity to affect change. I think what gets in the way is fear and vulnerability and shame. And so for me, vulnerability is, I guess what they share in common maybe is surrender Mm -hmm. in some way. It's kind of this idea of leaning into the discomfort I think powerlessness has that about it for me, and then vulnerability has that about it. But I think to be vulnerable is to be human. I mean, I think it is at the core. I think we are all vulnerable. But I also think what makes us vulnerable makes us beautiful and tender and connected. And for me, powerlessness is, it's just my personal take on the word. It's more of a defeated word for me. So for me, it doesn't work. But for others, I think it's been, you know, probably life-saving. Okay. And, well, and we'll be right back after this commercial. And once again, we invite you to call in and talk to us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. 
This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune into the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest today is Dr. Brene Brown, and we're talking about, we've been talking about shame, and in our last segment, we've been talking about things that are in her new book, The Gifts of Imperfection, Let Go of Who You Think You're Supposed to Be and Embrace Who You Are, Your Guide to a Wholehearted Life. And in your book, I love this um, quote, wholehearted life is not like trying to reach a destination. It's like walking toward a star in the sky. I just think that's a great analogy. Because you never so, get there. <laughs> yeah, because we never get there. And I think so much that we want things to be kind of the check-off to-do list, quick fix. And I just don't think, I think, you know, becoming our our most authentic selves is just a lifelong process. You know, I always tell people it's a long walk from what will people think to I am enough. Right. And we can, you know, we're not going to arrive or touch it, but I think we're certainly keenly aware when we're not going in the right direction. Um. I'm going to kind of go back to shame a little bit because sure. we talked about this in in our uh, last break. But I think, you know, we talk about um, we were talking about powerlessness and we were talking about vulnerability. But we also um, shame. You know, as I, I believe this as treatment providers that we sometimes use language that's shaming for people. Um, we call people by their diagnosis. Mm-hmm. I think just the word addict. It's so shame based. You know, it's like. It's, it brings up such a negative connotation. And um, people are more than their addiction. People are more than their heart disease. People are more than their cancer. And um, to just conceptualize a person from, from, from one thing that is wrong with them, that shouldn't be the only thing that defines them. Oh, my gosh, I agree 100%. I mean, Harriet Lerner, who wrote, you know, The Gifts of Imperfection, The Gifts of Fear. I'm sorry, The Dance of, I wrote The Gifts of Imperfection. I'm going crazy. Um, she wrote the dance of anger, the dance of connection. Um, she said, you know, no one wants to be defined by their greatest struggle or the worst thing they've ever done. Right. You know, and I think that's true. I, I don't know how helpful, you know, it's a big debate within the recovery world, and it's, that's a world where I do a lot of work. I, you know, I belong in that world. I work in that world. 
But there is a lot of debate around that, I think, this idea that to say, you know, hi, my name is Susie, I'm an addict, saves people's lives, and for other people, it prevents them from ever getting help or getting into recovery. Right. And so I think what we're starting to find out, at least what I'm hoping, is that there's room enough at the recovery table to invite people that have different beliefs and need different things from the program. And I think there are some basic tenets of the program that are probably not negotiable. I mean, abstinence would be one of them probably. Um, But I think, and and maybe even the belief that this is a deeply spiritual program, that 12 Steps is a deeply spiritual program, you know, whether, you know, spirit for you is God or a great fish in hole, I don't think it matters. Um, But... I do think this idea about how we define ourselves within the movement has got to be, we really have to start looking at that because I think in some ways the movement stigmatizes itself. Well, I think very much so, and I think that I really believe that self-help is self-help and treatment is something different. And um, I don't necessarily think that initially effective treatment is labeling somebody. Um, I think it's, Treatment, just like um, life, it's a journey, and and you begin with wherever the person is, and and you follow that person and their perceptions and their life experiences. And, you know, I I don't think that oftentimes labeling somebody from a treatment perspective is as um, important as that person embracing that, you know, my way of doing things isn't getting me where I want to go. Right, Maybe exactly. I need to change the way I'm doing things. And, yeah. and I think self-help is about that. It's about self-help and about self-identity and about con- connections and community. And, and I, think, I think it gets blurry. And I think I hear people in treatment centers that, you know, cite uh, the big book, chapter and verse, and they're clinicians, but I don't hear them talking about therapy and I don't hear them talking about um you know, uh, the psychodynamics of, of what's going on with the family. I hear them talking about families being in denial when reality families are just really fear-based and right. they're doing the best they can with very little um, constructive skills. Right, right, right. I, I mean, I agree with you 100%. I think, I think you know, labels are, you know, labels are a hard thing. You know, it's like I always say, I tell my graduate students, you know, labels are like fire and technology. You know, they can be very, very, very helpful and very, very, very lethal. You know, it's, I've, you know, I've known and worked with a lot of people who, you know, when they finally understand what's happening and it has a name, you know, it, it's, it's life-changing for them. It's wonderful. And, and thank God I understand what this is. And then I've seen people who can never get out from underneath the weight of their label. Right. And so I think it's really how we use it. I mean, one thing I cannot tolerate is someone who trains future clinicians. I mean, that's my work. I teach graduate doctoral level social work, um, master's and doctoral level, you know, calling people by their diagnosis, you know. I've got, you know, I've got a, a, a bipolar at three and a borderline at four. Unacceptable. Right. Unacceptable. Because, you know, the truth is we are all someone else's other. That's true, and Every. I think the, and and I think it also dehumanizes people. It does. So, so it makes people. Um, it, it becomes a vicious cycle. We dehumanize people. They feel less than. They feel shame, 
and we feel powerless. That's, that's it. And let me, yeah, and dehumanizing people is the first step toward all kinds of bad stuff. Right. Violence. I just, you know, there's no, there's no mass violence that ever happened in this world that didn't start by dehumanizing people. Um, one of the things that you, one, one of the tools you use in your book that helps people, and it's an acronym called DIG. Mm-hmm. Do you want to explain to our listeners what that is and how yeah, you use that? Yeah, actually there's a funny story behind that. Um, so the shift in my research from kind of just looking at shame to really trying to understand what, what happened was that I was looking at shame exclusively and shame and fear and vulnerability for six years. I got into kind of a contentious debate with some other researchers about the nature of shame and how you measure it. And this happened in late 2006, and I was, you know, I'd been sober for 10 years. I was kind of very newly sugar and flour free, and I was, you know, just trying out some new things in my life. I was a couple months, a month away maybe from my 41st birthday, and I was just very raw. And in this debate that I was having with researchers, I finally said, you know what, I don't think you can measure shame accurately. I think the best we can do is kind of like what we do in chemistry. In chemistry, if you've got a property that's so volatile that you can't really measure it accurately, you measure what exists in its absence. And I said, maybe I'll go back into this data and find out what exists in the lives of people who are not mired down, you know, mired in shame. People who really are living and loving with their whole hearts, what do they have in common? And so I started finding these patterns and themes, and it was devastating for me personally because basically these folks, the wholehearted, were living in a way that was very different than the way I was living. And so I kind of had what I call the 2007, I write, I write about it, you know, the 2007 breakdown slash spiritual awakening because my, my therapist called it a spiritual awakening, but I call it a breakdown. Um, I think spiritual awakening sounds better. But so what ended up happening is one of the things that changed for me is before this breakdown, and this is where I learned to stop, you know, doing so much head work and start doing some heart work and, you know, that how much you know yourself is important, but how kind you are to yourself is more important. Um, I used to always talk about my dig deep button, and I would write about it on my blog, you know, and a dig deep button is that button that we all have that, you know, when we're exhausted, when we're tired, when we're overwhelmed, we just have to dig deeper and get it done. And, you know, I gave birth to my dig deep button when I gave birth to my kids. It's like, you know, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. Both the kids have the flu. It's diarrhea, laundry. Kids are throwing up. I, I can't take it. You just dig deep and you get it done. And that's very much my personality. Suck it up, dig deep, soldier on. And so during this breakdown, kind of as I was learning to be kinder to myself and not so perfectionistic and not so hard on myself, um, my dig deep button kind of broke. I just kind of, when I got really tired, I had no second level of pushing on. And so I missed having that a little bit. And so I went into the research and said, so what do you do if you're not willing to spend your whole life sucking it up? and pushing on and soldiering through. And what I found is that the men and women who were living wholeheartedly did have a dig deep button, but it wasn't a suck it up button. It was they got deliberate. 
they got inspired and they got going. When things got hard for these folks, they got very intentional. So I called that, you know, they got deliberate, D, inspired I, and G, they got going. And so now when something hard is happening, rather than just saying, you know, don't worry about it, just keep going, don't worry about how you feel, don't worry about the exhaustion, don't worry about, you know, the fact you're tearful, just go, I get very deliberate. You know, I think to myself, what is it that I need? And I get very intentional. I need rest. I need to take a nap, which I would have never done for a million dollars before in my life. Um, And I try to get inspired. What can inspire me to take care of myself? You know, sometimes it's a quote. Sometimes it's a prayer. Sometimes I'll meditate. And then I need to get going. I need to act on it. And so I love this new way of digging, and it's really revolutionized the way I live. It's changed everything. I think that um, being uh, deliberate and and not trying to do everything at once, I think that's a gift. (laughs) Oh, it's such a gift. To learn how to do that. Um, I, I think that that's. And it's something that um, requires practice. All well, requires practice, I guess. Yeah, because, you know, it's so weird, but we live in a culture where multitasking is the default setting. Right. And it's so horrible because you're never really present for anything. It's like I do things very differently now. You know, like I have a post on my blog from a couple of months ago where I wrote about distracted parenting. I wrote about how I don't want my parents and my kids to remember me from the forehead up, you know, over my laptop screen. Or, you know, so now, like, if my, when I pick up my daughter from carpool, which I will, you know, in an hour, I'm never on the phone when she gets in the car. If I'm working, and this is, a, you know, this is the great thing and the bad thing about working at home, and Charlie, my 5-year-old, needs me, or, you know, I've got an 11-year-old daughter, if I'm not doing something super important, I will close my laptop and say, and turn toward them and say, hey, what's going on? Or if I'm in the middle of work, which sometimes just has to happen, I'll say, you know, I, what you're saying is important to me. I want to be able to give you my full attention. I need five minutes to finish this up or 20 minutes to finish this up. Can it wait? But I'm, I'm not doing a bunch of things anymore. I just can't. It's not fair to ourselves or the people we love. That's absolutely right. Um, and we'll be right back for our final segment after this commercial. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-Occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 
1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio, because shift happens. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk. Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest today is Dr. Brene Brown, and we're talking about um, the gifts of imperfection, um, one of which is wholeheartedness. And um, could you define for us what you mean by that? Well, I think wholeheartedness is about engaging with the world from a place of worthiness. It's about, you know, the way the definition I say, it's about getting up in the morning and saying, no matter what gets done and how much is left undone, I'm worthy of love and belonging. And it's going to bed at night and saying, yes, I'm imperfect and vulnerable and sometimes afraid, but it doesn't change the fact that I'm also brave and worthy of love and belonging. I mean, love and belonging is an irreducible need of men, women, and children. We are, we need to have love in our lives. We need to have a sense of belonging in our lives. And it was very interesting because if you kind of crudely talk about you know, the people I interviewed in two categories, people who really kind of held a deep sense of love and belonging within them and then people who struggled for it, there there was only one variable that separated those folks. And that was that people who have that sense of love and belonging simply believe they are worthy of love and belonging. And worthiness doesn't have prerequisites. Worthiness is not, you know, I'll be worthy when I lose 20 pounds. I'll be worthy... When I, you know, get another job, I'll be worthy if I make partner, if my daughter gets into Yale, if, you know, um, worthy is as is right now, how we are, who we are. And so I think ultimately wholeheartedness comes down really to just engaging with the world from a place of worthiness. In addition to love and uh, belonging, you also talk about authenticity. Yes. And um, which I think... here at Westbridge, we've been trying to define that for ourselves for the last few years because we want to be authentic, which for us means we want to be real in the moment. We want to, you know, say what we think, and we want to hold each other accountable to whatever standards we think that we want our organization to run by. But um, I, could you share with our listeners your definition of authenticity? Sure. I mean, I put this together just based on what I learned from the folks that you know, and I've collected over 10,000 stories in the last 11 years. And so it has been very helpful for me to kind of understand the, 
the constellation of choices that people are making every day. And the first thing I learned about authenticity is I thought people were either authentic or inauthentic. Like I thought it was kind of inherent to who we are. But authenticity is a choice. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a collection of choices that we make every day. And I think authenticity has three big components. And those three components are actually the gifts of imperfection. Um, courage, and it's the courage to be imperfect, to be vulnerable, and to set boundaries. The compassion, to be authentic means to have the compassion, to understand that we're all made of strength and struggle, and that we're all connected to each other. And then the connection that happens when we let go of who we think we're supposed to be and embrace who we are. That sense of belonging that we are all craving that's kind of in our DNA does not come from fitting in. It doesn't come from pretending to be somebody so we're accepted. It becomes from being who we are and bringing us ourselves to the table. And so I think authenticity is when we make the choices to practice courage and compassion and connection in our daily lives, even when we're afraid, even when we're struggling with shame, I think that's how we invite grace and joy and wholeheartedness into our lives. If people want to learn uh, more about um, your work, uh, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you? Probably just through the website. My website's just brenebrown.com. Um, and my blog is connected to my website. You can get there through BreneBrown.com, or you can go directly to OrdinaryCourage.com. And um, your your blog is very robust. Maybe you'd like to share with our listeners some of the things that are going on right now. Oh yeah! Last week we had um, to celebrate the launch of um, the Gifts of Imperfection, my new book. We had I started a perfect protest where people made protest signs. Um, around letting go of perfection. And I thought, you know, there'd be like, you know, 15 or 20 people that would do it, like my sisters, my mom, (laughs) my friends. But hundreds and hundreds of people have made signs. And, in fact, today um, my husband put all the pictures together that were on the Internet, and we put them into a video that's really, the first time I saw it, I kind of burst into tears. Um, So there's always a lot of great things going on. You know, I say that wholeheartedness is, it's a movement, you know, it's, it's all of us kind of taking to the streets with our messy, crazy, authentic lives and saying, we're here, we're enough, let's celebrate, you know. And so we always have a lot of really fun things going on on the blog. I think if if nothing else, if people can just um, listen to what you're saying and understand that who they are is good enough and it's not who people want us to be or it's not who the media says we should be and it's not about more toys and more money and more things. It's about, um, you know, learning to be the best you can be. Absolutely. No, absolutely. I think it's, yeah, you know, it's, perfection is a funny thing. You know, I always thought to be my best self meant to be perfect. You know, to kind of look perfect, to work perfectly, to have the pumpkins out on, you know, October 1st and switched out to Thanksgiving on November 1st and then Christmas on December 1st. And, and my kids were, you know, had a, my daughter had a five-foot bow in her hair, you know, and it, that's what I thought. And what I realized through doing this research is that perfection has nothing to do with healthy striving or wanting to be our best selves. Perfection in its simplest form is about protection. Perfection is this belief system that says if we look perfect, live perfect, and do it perfectly we can protect ourselves from feeling judged and blamed and shamed. 
And so what's interesting, and this is you know, a quote from the book, that we carry around perfection. Perfection becomes like a 20-ton shield that we carry around with us thinking that it's going to protect us when really it's the thing that weighs us down and keeps us from taking flight. You know, and so we have to understand that risking not being liked or risking not being accepted um, is scary. But at some point, we have to ask ourselves, you know, am I willing to let go of what other people think? Or which is scarier, that or letting go of who I am and what I believe in my life? And people get lost in perfectionism, and they don't they lose touch with who they are, and um, they become so afraid of failure when failure is part of life. I mean, we all make mistakes, we all fail at things, and um, absolutely. And that seems to be so not okay. You no, know? because we live in a culture that says our self-worth is our net worth. You know, the square foot of our house matters more than the people who live in it. You know, and and it's a very, very, very dangerous way to live. Well, it is, and um, people get lost. And, Absolutely. Uh, and they, they get lost and they hurt themselves and other people, and... Um, and it's um, it's all about striving for something that we can never attain. Yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent. Because you know that's the dangerous thing about perfectionism is that those of us who struggle with it, when we do invariably feel judged or criticized or blamed, instead of saying, "God, being perfect is not worth it. This is these are human experiences, failures. These things these things are going to happen," we look at ourselves and say, "Oh, you know what?" this happened because I wasn't perfect enough. And so it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Thank you so much for spending this hour with us. I've learned a lot. Um, I hope our listeners have as well. And um, just remember, everybody, who you are today is who you're supposed to be, and um, you're good enough. Uh, Thank you, Brene, so much, and thank you for writing the book. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Have a good week, everybody. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.